Please be seated. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 4, we're continuing on our series through this book. And so whatever you think of Judges 4, remember that it led God's people to sing songs of joy and celebration. And so it's just a helpful thing to have in mind. I mean, we just sang it, Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. I don't know what last time that was a part of your prayer, your prayer life. And yet it's teaching us <laughs> to trust God to save and, and recognizing that there are things out there that we cannot control and we need, we need God to deal with evil. And so Judges 4 is going to help us with that same idea. So let's, let's read this and pray. This is the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroshoeth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman, the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Agoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. 
And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. And I'm going to skip down to verse 23. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hebron the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. And where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoiled of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as it rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would arise and shine um, the glory of Jesus' great salvation 
so that we would rise up and follow him regardless of the cost, that we would not be found unmoved by his death and resurrection, content to watch, but that we would participate in your mission, that we would be drawn in to follow and be faithful to, to love and obey because you have first loved us. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us, light a fire in us so that we would be a people at Hope Church who willingly follow our King into battle against sin and unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the great part about preaching judges is it doesn't really need an introduction to get your attention. <laughs> and this is a, a shocking passage. Shocking because of the violence, but shocking more because of who God uses this time around to save his people. And that's, that's the message of judges, is it gets more and more chaotic. The way God redeems and rescues his people is going to get more surprising as he uses the weak and the foolish to rescue Israel from the strong. And so, in our passage today, God chooses to rescue Israel from a prophetess, through a, a general, and a, and a homemaker, an ordinary housewife, J.L. And just to help you be more shocked, to help you hear how the ancient world would hear about Deborah and J.L. taking the lead, right? I think it just helps to see how far we've come as a culture because of the influence of Jesus and the Bible uh, and women's rights. I mean, we take it for granted that, uh, that women can read, that women can vote, that women can go to work outside the home. I mean, all these things, that women should be honored among us. I mean, all those things are because of biblical teaching. So here's, listen to this description of a conservative Muslim coming across a Christian culture, and this is in the 1600s. And it's like he's come to an alien planet the way he sees men treat women. This is what this, is what this Muslim says. In this country, I saw an extraordinary spectacle that whenever the emperor meets a woman in the street, if he is riding, he brings his horse to a standstill and lets her pass. If the European is on foot and meets a woman, he stands in a posture of politeness. The woman greets the emperor, who then takes off his hat to show respect for the woman. And after the woman has passed, the emperor continues his way. It is indeed an extraordinary spectacle. In this country and in the general, in the land of unbelievers, remember he's a Muslim, women have the main say. And that's, that's an extremely conservative culture hearing about women just being respected. I wonder how he would hear Deborah, the prophetess, speaking God's words with authority, ruling over God's people, uh, disputing over arguments, and then a woman summoning a man and telling her what God, or telling him what God told him to do. I mean, this is shocking. The Old Testament gets a bad rap for not uh, honoring women. Um, this is one of those examples that shows how God honors women in ways that the ancient world did not. Because you heard at the end of our passage in chapter 5 that the Canaanite view of women was pretty ugly. Uh, they were valued for their body, which sounds an awful lot like our world. Now in our passage is what we're going to look at this morning. We have Deborah the judge, the prophetess, Jael the housewife, and a humble general 
And God uses that to work out his great salvation. And so let's, let's see what this teaches us. We're just going to have to go through it. There's a lot of cultural detail that helps bring this story to life. But it, it will eventually help us see how, how God saves us through Jesus. So first, let's look at the prophetess Deborah, where we start in four, chapter 4, verse 1. And you have the familiar refrain that Israel, Israel's evil was not, could not be restrained. They did evil again. And it became chaos, and God, as an instrument of justice, raised up Jabin. He's the new instrument of, of punishment to try and woo Israel back to faith. And what makes Jabin uh, significant is he hires this mercenary general named Sisera. And Sisera is not a Canaanite name, is what the experts tell me. Right? He's, he's an outsider. And he's a guy for hire willing to kill and brutalize for money, power, and influence. This is not somebody of high moral character. It's not somebody you want to date your daughter. I mean, Sisera is this despicable human being. I mean, even his own mother says he's, it's just too horrible to speak. It's just evil. Right? He has 900 chariots, which is a fierce, ancient army. If you have iron chariots in battle against just an infantry, well, the iron chariots just roll through foreign armies like a knife, hot knife through butter. Right? There is no place in the history of the world where if you have that many iron chariots that you, without chariots, are going to win the battle if you're just on foot. And so Jabin and Sisera tag team to oppress Israel for 20 years. And you, if you fill in the gaps of what Sisera's mom says about him and, and just that whole idea, you can tell this is a miserable place for Israel. They're being uh, pillaged, they're being assaulted, they are under a cruel hand. And it's in the midst of this tragedy, this chaos, this horror, that Deborah is, arises as a prophet in Israel. She's, she's judging, right? And so we have to do some work here because there are all kinds of ways to read this. And... Uh, Right, so our more liberal friends will read about Deborah and say, look, here is a woman who's risen to the top, and there is no reason then that women should not be able to do whatever men can do. And they read Deborah as someone to be imitated. Rather, they read the, the narrative as prescription rather than description, and they, they are. They are more opportunists with the text. Right, they're just as shocked as you are that God would raise up Deborah, and so they either say it's not true, but either way, women should do this. Right, and so what I, when you come to places like this, it's just good to pause and say, this is history. So we need clear passage of Scripture to help us apply history. And there is nothing in here that says we should imitate Deborah. Because if you're going to imitate the women in the text, how, what are you going to do with J.L.? Right, those same people don't say, let's be like jail, let's get a hammer and, and tent peg. Right, so it's hard to be consistent if you're going to take the passage that way. But there's also a conservative way, I mean, this is the way I heard it growing up, of looking at Deborah like this. It's the reason she's a prophetess is because the, the men just haven't stepped up to lead. Right, God wouldn't exalt a woman above this, like this, like above a man, and if Barak wasn't so timid, we wouldn't have needed Deborah. That's, that's, I would call that the more tradition, a traditionalist way of reading this, is that the idea is 
And it's true in some places. Women step up to lead when men do not. And I mean, I heard Pastor Tim Whitmer, who's a PCA pastor who was asked to, to plant a church or to, to lead a church that was not part of our denomination. They had women elders and women pastors. And he said, I'm going to lead you into the PCA. That means there's only going to be men as elders. And uh, that's what exactly what happened is they had a congregational meeting and one of the women elders stood up and looked at the men. The men were mad that this whole idea was going to happen and the, the woman elder looked at the guy and named him by name. and said, I'm only here because you didn't step up. But the question is, is that what's happening here? Right? Because the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that she's a judge because of weakness. It just says she arose. Right? And so look closely. She is a prophetess, and this is something we should be in awe of, especially in the Old Testament before Jesus. You have a woman who is, this is what a prophet does. A prophet speaks God's words as they hear them from God and gives them to God's people. It's Deuteronomy 18. She's speaking the word of Yahweh to God's people and helping them apply it. She's helping them apply what God has said in the Old Testament, in the Torah. She's, she's helping people apply God's word as a judge. She's counseling. She's hearing arguments and disputes and trying to make peace. She's like a mother. She's refereeing conflict. Right? And so you look at verse 6, she has she is speaking with the same authority as if God is speaking. And so I just want you to see Deborah is a prophetess because God empowered and appointed her to do so. There's no reason to be threatened by this because it's the hope of the Old Testament. Like I said, we take this for granted that women can read the Bible and that they can teach other people the Bible. But listen to Moses in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Numbers eleven twenty nine. He this is his hope. I he says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit in them. I, this is Moses. I wish everyone could do what I'm doing. Men and women, all flesh. Because in the Old Testament, there's this hope and desire that male and female, Jew and Gentile, would know God, would know his word, would speak his truth to others. They would, ha- they would be able to discern between good and evil and be able to help one another. Right? So Deborah is a picture of what will be. Right? Moses longed for that day when men and women would be filled with God's spirit and speak God's word to others with that kind of authority. He longed for the day when men and women would love the God of the Bible, when men and women were solid theologians together, helping others know God. I mean, this is a, a glimpse of what will happen in the New, Te- New Testament. I mean, listen to Joel. This is the prophet Joel 2.28. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that I will pour out on my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and daughters, they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and our young men shall see visions. But even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. So you take what's clear and come back to Deborah and say God's desire, Moses' desire, the desire of the Old Testament is that women would prophesy. That God would 
This is positive, that God would pour out his spirit and equip someone to help others, to be godly theologians. And that's exactly what happens in Acts 2. The spirit comes down and men and women together are witnesses of Christ's resurrection and they're, they're teaching one another the scriptures. And so it's just good to, I want to speak to the women. This would be a better Mother's Day sermon, but that's okay. This is God's timing. It's just saying that men and women, but specifically here as we look at Deborah, you are called by God, saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, to be a biblical theologian, to know the Bible, and to be able to communicate it to someone else. It's it's not complicated. I know we have prophecy, and when you think about the gifts, it gets really weird, but the idea is taking the resurrection and making it practical. And say, how does Jesus help me here? And when someone else comes to you, how does Jesus help you here? You, you're, you're prophesying when you use the scripture to help someone else. Right? Deborah's a glimpse of that. Right, so we are pro-Deborah, or at least I am. <laughs> right? she, this is a true story. God raises her up in the midst of the chaos to do war with sin by speaking his word. And you notice it just says she was raised up. She was there before Barak comes on the scene. She's a prophetess by God's will. It's not cause and effect. It doesn't say anywhere about the weakness of men. It just says she's a prophetess. And if she's speaking God's word, God's empowering her to do it. Now, second, if Deborah is a prophetess, she's also a judge here. And this is what exalts her once again. Because everywhere else in Judges, a judge is a warrior. They have to fight. Right? They, they pick up a sword. They go to battle. But here we have Deborah judging under a palm tree. She's giving verdicts. She's doing justice. You never hear about her picking up a sword. Even when she's, she tells Barak to go, she doesn't say she runs down the mountain. And so it's this astonishing picture of Deborah the judge ruling with judicial authority over the people at this time. And so let me help fill in some of the culture. The Bible's Old Testament's always a cross-cultural experience, but especially in Judges. And so I want to lean in on someone who helped me understand this, Gordon Hugenberger. Um, he's an Old Testament professor. Uh, he helped straighten Pastor Jim's theology out, so you can blame Hugenberger for that one. <laughs> All right. But he, he talks about this. What does it mean for, for Deborah to be a judge? To be under the palm tree that has her name. And, and he points this out, that in the Bible, justice and trees go together. Right? It starts right in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Right? The tree where you consult God's women, God's women, God's wisdom, let's try that again, to determine what is right and wrong. That's what should have happened with the snake. Adam and Eve should have taken the snake to the tree, said, God, is this right or wrong? And in trusting God's women, they should have stomped on its head, pinned it to the tree. It should have been judged. That's not what happened. Here we are. Right, justice and trees go together. You get that in Deuteronomy 21. It's, it's a well-known description. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. If you're on a tree, you are cursed by God if you're being hung. And so the idea is, is the very worst crimes 
would have both the trial and the execution taking place at a tree. Right? So these are for horrible cases, cases where, cases where stoning just won't do. Right? Murder, violence, brutality. And, and so the tree is, a, is the courtroom and the, and the place where justice happens. And the condemned would be hung on a tree for everyone to see that they are guilty under the law and cursed by God. Which is an astounding thing then to think about Jesus hanging on a tree between two other thieves and murderers, also on a tree, where the selfless one gave up his life to be treated like a life taker. And so the point is, Deborah is a judge at this tree, and she doesn't have the basement office at a law firm at the bottom of the totem pole wishing to be upstairs with the men. I mean, this is the Supreme Court in ancient Israel's day. She is, she is hearing capital cases, things that, that require an immense amount of wisdom. She's giving counsel. She's discerning good and evil. She's hearing major court cases. And if they're found guilty, the palm of Deborah would not be a popular place that day for the guilty. So the idea is, Deborah is speaking God's word and she's ruling and it's this beautiful picture of Israel needs someone to rule, to restrain the chaos of their hearts. Someone to restrain evil, to do justice, to be a wonderful counselor, to be a prince of peace. Deborah is just giving you a taste of what, what the future king will be like. The only thing she is not is a priest because only priests, on, priests were only men in the Old Testament. That was barred from women. So, pull all that together. You know how you're supposed to see Deborah? This is one of the highest honors, I think, you can get in the Old Testament. She's like Moses. She's a prophet. Moses was a prophet. She's sitting, judging under a tree, ruling with wisdom and authority, just like Moses in Exodus 18. Just the way the story is designed, where you have a great salvation and then you have a song celebrating that salvation, it's a mirror image of Exodus 14 and 15. Only Deborah's the one leading the singing, not Moses. I mean, just test your Bible knowledge here. Who else do you know that Israel was oppressed by? Who also had terrifying chariots that were coming rushing down on a helpless, unarmed group of people that they're about to be mowed down like grass? It was Egypt at the Red Sea. It was, you have this violent army pursuing unarmed slaves, and God rescues his people through Moses. Moses leads them through the Red Sea, and the waters themselves go to war against God's enemies. Egyptians get justice. Israel gets grace. And then they sing about it in Exodus 15. Moses and Miriam sing together, male and female. It's just switched now. Deborah and Barak. Because you come to our story, you have Israel again. They're outnumbered and outmanned and outgunned. With shield or spear to be found among 40,000 in Israel, they are hopelessly outgunned. They, you know, they're fighting chariots with pitchforks or whatever weapons they could construct for themselves. And the waters come to the aid of God's people again. And then Deborah leads the song of salvation. Right? See, Deborah is raised up to be like Moses. So you can pause here and say, what does that tell you and I about 
women's roles in the church, and that is a really long talk. But I just want you to see how countercultural Deborah's role is, and that's what's so surprising here is, is God uses what the world sees as foolish and weak to save his people in the same way that he does with Jesus. Because in the ancient world, women didn't lead like this. God raised Deborah up to be a new Moses, a prophetic, and a judge to combat evil. So honor her. And as women, I mean, she says, I arose as a mother in Israel. And let's be honest, is there anything that we men have not learned that probably didn't first come to us from our mothers? (laughs) I mean, mothers restrain evil, right? They, They do justice. They love mercy. They even cover with a blankie and bring you a nice glass of warm milk. And they're much kinder than JL. But it's the idea that in the church, women have the same role to to care for the children. It's it's an honor just to be able to speak God's word to other people, to rejoice in that. I mean, I think as a church, to take that seriously, to take Moses' prayer, Deborah's example, Acts 2 seriously, that you, men and women, are equally endowed with the Holy Spirit and given different roles in the church. I'm as a Presbyterian, women are equipped to prophesy. I mean, that's what the scriptures say, to be witnesses of Christ and his resurrection and to teach people how to live in light of the gospel. We do it as a church with deaconesses. We have women that model mercy for us, and part of that's to pray, part of that's to give counsel to those who are getting aid, part of that's to use the scriptures when needed. I mean, Terry and Jill do that for us. I mean, there, there are all kinds of ways to get involved, but the idea is God built the church so that men and women would work together in his mission. Different roles, both called to prophesy. Now, we can come back to the story of salvation here because there's still a lot of questions. Honor Deborah. Now we come to the bait. That's what I'm calling Barak. Because this is God's plan. If you keep going in the story, Deborah summons Barak and says, Has not God told you to take 10,000 men? Go up to a mountain and I will draw out the enemy and meet you by the river. And this is the battle plan. Tell me if you're going to sign up for this. Take a poorly armed group of men, go up to a mountain, and run down the mountain right at the iron chariots, which will win the battle every time. With shield or spear to be found in Israel among 40,000. This is a suicide mission by all appearances if you're uh, into battle tactics. And the plan is that Barak would be the bait. Right? That the the juicy worm put on the hook would be Barak and these men, and it, Sisera and Jabin just wouldn't be able to resist the opportunity to smash Israel into oblivion, to stuff out any kind of rebellion. And so they go up, and that the, that's the plan. Just stand there until you become, well, looks like you're about to be run over. And Barak's reply to Deborah to this plan to be the bait is, I will only go if you go with me. I know some people have beaten poor Barak up for his timid faith, for his weak faith, because it does seem at first read like his punishment for not going without Deborah is that the honor will go to a woman. woman. But I think a more optimistic view is just, just the facts. Deborah says, go, 
That's God's plan. And she says, Barak, this expedition will not result in getting you praise. Go even though you will not get honored. It will go to a woman. I think that's, that's how you're supposed to read this. And by faith in this plan, in God's plan, Barak goes. And the reason I'm reading it that way is because of what Hebrews 11 says about Barak. Hebrews 11:32, for time would fail to tell me, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Barak is a man of faith who goes to war knowing he won't get the praise for the victory. It's an act of humility. I mean, when was the last time you did something knowing you would not get recognized for it? It's pretty Jesus-like. To go to the cr- Jesus who went to the cross, to not get, knowing he would not get praised by human beings who thought of others as more significant than himself. Right? I mean, the battle plan is go and let God save you. You are weak. God will rescue you. And even if you do knock Barak for not going without Deborah, just think about it this way. Is his faith any smaller for going to battle with 10,000 men and one woman unarmed? (laughs) Right? I mean, it's still a crazy plan whether she's there or not. By faith, I think this is what Barak is doing. He's taking Deborah because she embodies God's presence and God's wisdom and God's word. So, that's what happens. Deborah and Barak, they go up the mountain. And you have this random note about Heber the Kenite. We don't really know why until later. But the battle happens. Sisera takes the bait. The chariots come out. And Deborah says, up, Barak. This is the day of your victory. They come rushing down. The Lord routes Sisera. And you're at the end, I mean, just saying, how in the world did this victory come about? And you don't hear about it really until the poem that there was a flash flood at the bottom of the mountain. This, this dry riverbed became a raging f- flood, and chariots don't do so well in the mud. Men got swept away by the waters, and God gave the victory to his people. And so it's, it's an astounding victory. Chapter 5, verse 4, God shook the clouds and they dropped with water. And you, you can read later about men being swept away as the heavens go to battle for Israel against their enemies. And eventually you have this song just celebrating. We could not have won the battle if it was not for God on our side. So how do you apply that? (laughs) I think one of the ways, there's a lot here, but one of the ways you could do it is as you get to the song in the middle that we didn't read, one of the things Deborah says is it's just amazing that anyone would participate. Bless the leaders, bless the people that they willingly went and participated in the plan. But there are other clans that just stayed home. They didn't participate. To be honest, would you have gone with Barak up the mountain by faith, participated in God's plan here? I mean, there were those who said, well, this is too dangerous. I don't have the the skills. I don't have the talent. I don't have the gifts. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm going to stay home. I love my comfort, my stuff, my time, and my energy. I'm just not going to fight. And the poem says, well, curse Meraz, the angel of the Lord says, because they didn't come to help. 
So part of what this passage, I think, is getting us to think about and what the Holy Spirit's going to empower people to do. Say, are you willing to participate in God's mission? To step out in faith, fully aware of your inability to follow Jesus, trusting that God will fight for you and equip you for everything you need for the journey. The idea is that showing up and working together as a church and growing in the grace and knowledge of your Savior and, and taking the risk to talk about Jesus among your neighbors and, and just participating, putting your sin to death, all these things are things that we do not have the ability to do on our own. And when you show up, that's an act of faith. Because what makes the church its strongest is when you have God's army of misfit soldiers who are weak, who are unable on their own, but they show up anyway. Say, I am weak, but I need your help, Lord, because you have promised to be faithful. See, that's, that's the picture of the church, men and women working together, being faithful to God together, armed with the gospel, stepping out in faith. I mean, just think about the idea of being a witness. Right? What natural abilities do you have to change anyone's mind? I'm going to have to tell myself this every time I get up to preach. <laughs> Only the Holy Spirit changes hearts and minds. But God asks us to show up and use our words. All right? we, we plant the seed, he does the watering. Last point here. We've got to deal with the hammer. Right, Cicero, he's not dead yet. He's an antichrist figure. He runs away when, when things get difficult. And in verse 17, we're shown why it matters, why we hear about Heber the Kenite, because of Jael, Heber's wife. And it is a hard passage. There is no way to escape the fact that Jael seduces Cicero into her, her tent, into thinking he's safe, that she sets herself up as the bait to draw him in. And then she smashes him with a hammer. Right? The language she uses is, is the language of seduction. When you read in Proverbs, it's the, it's the language of the seductress of folly in Proverbs. She says, turn aside, come in. It'll be safe here. And as Cicero experienced firsthand that the, it, with his folly, his foolishness, it was a banquet of death in there. But it lets you also let you know the kind of man Sisera is. That he is so arrogant that he thinks a woman would, be, would want to seduce him. He, he has no ability to rule over his, his horrific desires. And so it works. You can look at it. The husband's not at home. She invites him in. She hides him. She covers him with a blankie. It's like she's pretending to be a, a sweet and tender mama, right? She gives him more than water. She gives him a nice glass of milk, bowl of curds. It's like she's caring for a tired child, sweet and tender, and then bam, she drives the, the tent peg into his, into his head. God's smashing salvation. And there's no explanation as to why. Right? Her husband had a peace treaty. Why does she do this? I mean, my best guess is that she knew what kind of man he was and that it probably wouldn't have gone well for her if Sisera had won the battle. I mean, the, if the, the description of Sisera 
from his mother is much more crude in the Hebrew than the English. The point is, he's evil. He's about as evil an antichrist as you can get in the Old Testament. But either way, Jael gets the glory, and she is described as the most blessed of women. And we're just left going, what about turn the other cheek? Uh, Love your enemies. Where's Jesus in this violent mess? Why is the violence praise? If you read verses 26 and 27, it, it's painful. It just slows down. Right? She struck him. She crushed his head. She shatters and pierces his temple. Between her feet, he fell. He sank. He's dead. As if we needed that clarification. Right? This is heartwarming devotional literature at its finest. But then it says, this is the prayer we should pray, make God... So may all your enemies perish like this, O Lord, and your friends rise like the sun in his might. So here's, here's how I want to end. You know why it focuses in on the head and the presence of evil? It's a reminder of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is a violent promise, and we forget that. Because Genesis 3.15, as soon as evil comes into the world and human beings are no longer able to control their desires, they're going to rule their way no matter what it costs to other people. That's what happens in Genesis. But in Genesis 3.15, God says, now that evil is here, I'm not going to leave you alone. A woman will give birth to a son and he will crush the serpent, evil. He will crush its head, it says specifically, and he will bruise its heel. And so it's this reminder for Israel, for all of God's people, that yeah, Sisera is dead. This is the judgment that evil deserves. It needs to be eradicated. We should not make peace treaties with evil. What God calls evil, we should destroy. We should smash with a hammer, take the word of God to it, kill it till it does not rise anymore. But it's getting you to say, you know what the problem with Israel and the problem with Canaan And the problem with Sisera is much deeper than just their violence. It's their heart. We need evil inside to be crushed. Because that's the problem with Israel. They keep getting in trouble. That's the depressing refrain of judges. The, The will to do what God's want, what God wants them to do, is just not there. And and so we need to pray, God, may all your enemies perish, may sin, may death, may the evil one be crushed like this. How does that happen? It's going to be through this promised child who's born of a woman. Women, once again, are honored. They are a key part of God's plan of salvation. It's Jesus. Because one day, evil will be crushed. And how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus crush evil, shatter it, pierce its temple? by being crushed, by being bruised, by being pierced. It was God's plan from the beginning. And when you, this is the time of Easter as you come to Good Friday. Think about Jesus' plan of salvation as he pulls it straight from J.L.'s playbook. He's the bait. He draws evil out to crush him. And he invites evil to do his, its worst to Jesus, God's beloved, perfect son. And when you read the Gospels, Jesus orchestrated it. 
And he allows himself to be crushed to the point of death to where he does not rise again, hung on a tree, cursed by God, declared guilty under the law, even though he had done no wrong. See, the only weapon in evil's hand is death, cruelty, and humiliation. And God used evil to destroy itself as it poured out all its rage on the perfect son. That's God's plan to deliver us from evil. And what happens after? Well, the resurrection. (laughs) Jesus rises and he gives the same spirit that empowered him for the battle to his church. Men and women together going to war against their desires, not against the enemies out there. He says, every Christian is called to make that confession. I need my evil crushed. I need my evil controlled, ruled, restrained, because it's just in there like a beast running wild, rampant. And only the death of Christ gets the attention of your heart. See, it's been crucified, killed, put to death. And now he says, I want you to follow me. (laughs) So, conclusion. Part of Judges 4 and 5 is is getting you to, if, if they sang at the death of one man who was evil, how much more should we sing at the death of our sin? At everything being forgiven, as we, even as we confessed our faith this morning, that God imputes Jesus' righteousness to us as though we had done nothing wrong. Right. The question is, will you participate in it by faith? Right. Part of what I hope this does is help you love Jesus more. Because who does Jesus, Jesus is the better Barak, Who does Jesus share the glory for his victory with? Jesus alone saves. Who does he share the the victory with? Well, Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus shares the glory of his victory with you when you show up and participate. We're left saying, what did I do? I just showed up. (laughs) We're going to give the crowns back to Jesus because of this amazing gift of grace as he empowers us to do what we could not do on our own. And honestly, that's what gets me up off the couch. to, To show up, that Jesus is able to use our weakness, our foolishness, our desires to build his church, to put to death my selfishness, to get back out there and say, okay, The way of Jesus is not to dominate my enemies, it's to serve them. It's not to crush my enemies with violence. It's to love them through radical hospitality. We're just called to show up. And that's where I hope we we just start working towards it together as a church. We talked about an evangelism conference last year. I mean, this is something that we don't know how to do this. We're, We're outnumbered. We're a minority, and yet God says if we show up, his spirit moves. So how do we do that? I mean, that, That's some of the things I hope we have conversations with as we, as we work together. But the answer of how do we go? We go, we're told, don't be afraid because God is with you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we saw how you saved through unlikely means. 
And we may not have all of our questions answered, but I pray that as we see Jesus conquering and ruling and reigning, even through death on a cross, that it would get us to move. It would motivate us to get to know you, to know the scriptures, and to do battle with our sin. So Lord, I pray your spirit would blow among us, fill us to, to do things we never thought we could do, to do more than we could ask or imagine because of your great love that is, that is higher and wider, uh, deeper and longer than we can even comprehend. So help us taste that and go and follow in Jesus' name. Amen.